That's one of my favorite songs because life is hard, isn't it? As a pastor, I have the privilege of being in some of the hardest places of the personal lives of women, whether it's a marriage that's on the verge of falling apart or the medical diagnosis of a child, whether it's the fragility of a parent who's in his or her last days or a teenager who is flushing their life with video games and drugs or the threat of homelessness because someone has just lost their job and doesn't know if they can continue to live where they've been living. And I know that these are some of the things that you are dealing with this week because these are the stories I've heard this week. It's tough. Life is hard. And what I love about James is that he is just telling us like it is, right? He is just straight up, he's telling us it's tough. There are trials in life. He's not soft-pedaling the truth. He is telling us that as believers, we all face trials. And if we're really honest with each other, it still surprises us, doesn't it? Don't we still somewhere deep in our hearts feel that because we're now walking with Christ, because we're in a relationship with the living God, that somehow things should just be a little bit easier? Don't we still feel that way? Aren't we still surprised when hard things happen in our lives? But I have to tell you the truth, and James tells us the truth. The reality is that trials are a part of life, and if you haven't experienced a significant challenge in your life, my guess is you just haven't lived long enough yet, because it's coming. Someday, someone you love is going to become sick. Someone you love is going to die. Something is going to happen that is going to challenge your confidence in the goodness of God, because that's life. Last week, Rhonda reminded us that we all face trials, and in the midst of trials, we have a choice to make about how we're going to respond to the various hardships that come our way. So each and every trial that we go through is an opportunity to respond to God in faith. And we respond to him also with this expectation that somehow in our circumstances, he is going to use our trial, our our difficulty, to to grow us up in some way, to mature us in our character, to make us more like Christ, to teach us something more about himself, that, that somehow, even in the midst of our difficulty, there is going to be something good that as, comes as a result. We know that God's love is so comprehensive that he actually wastes nothing. Nothing is wasted in God's economy. Whether it's a test or a trial or a temptation, God uses every single opportunity to grow us up in the knowledge of him and to show us that he loves us and that he is working behind the scenes of our lives all the time to make us whole or complete in him. And that's why James is telling us it's so important that we persevere. It's so important that we remain steadfast in our trials. And as Rhonda reminded us last week, we not only remain steadfast, we do so with joy. We do so with this joyful anticipation that God is going to do something, that he is faithful. James wants us to know that God's goal for our lives is maturity. 
He wants us to grow up. Now, maybe you're asking yourself this question. Maybe this morning you're thinking, well, why is my life so hard? Or can God be trusted with my trials? The trial that I'm in the midst of right now, can God be trusted with that trial? Or can I actually face my tests and temptations and not sin in the midst of them? So the passage that we're going to look at today, James is going to um, help us understand why we struggle. And he's going to help us shift our perspective about the battles that we face so that we can actually emerge victoriously in Christ. Today, we're going to learn, as I know you already know this, that life is hard. But God is good. God is good. So we're going to look at our passage in three parts. First, we're going to look at the trouble with money. Why is it that both rich and poor have trouble with money? We all do. Then we're going to look at the crown of life, the promised blessing of persevering in Christ. And lastly, we're going to look at the lure of desire. What is the lure of desire? And I'm going to take you through some steps for you to be able to recognize the progression of sin. So let's begin with verse 9 in chapter 1 of James. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. The thing about money is money is actually a trial for all of us, right? Some of us don't have enough money to pay for our debts or to do all the things that we want to do that money would buy. And some of us are burdened with all the stuff and responsibility that money buys, right? Either way, it's a burden. And James knows that financial trials, financial hardships are a kind of hardship that completely levels the playing field between the rich and the poor. Both experience blessing and suffering as a result of money. So he starts off by talking to the poor person, and he says to the poor person, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Now, when James wrote this, 90% of the people that would read his letter were poor. They were living in the Roman uh, Empire at the time, and 90% of the people were at or below the poverty level. So most people identified with what he's going to say to the poor. But I imagine that in our room right now, 90% of us are above the poverty level. That doesn't mean that there aren't struggles, I know, with finances, but I bet 90% of us are living above the poverty level. I actually thought that Lake Oswego was the most wealthy community in the state of Oregon, but do you know it's not? I was shocked. Do you know what the number one most wealthy community in Oregon is? I heard it. Sherwood. Yeah, Sherwood, number one. Number two is Happy Valley. Number three is Westland. Number four is Lake Oswego. And number five is Sandy. Top five wealthiest communities. So the reason for that is that the poverty level in these communities is so low. Less than 4% of people in these communities qualify as being, uh, their income being at the poverty level. 
Isn't that interesting? So we collectively represent the most wealthy people in the state of Oregon in one way or another. But that does not mean that you are not struggling with money. If you are now or who have ever struggled to make ends meet, you know that everything changes when you don't have money, right? People treat you totally differently. You could have been paying faithfully on your visa card your entire life, but the minute you miss a payment, they treat you like you just got out of jail, right? You are the scum of the earth. Everything changes. Um, Your life ratchets down and becomes very restricted when you don't have money. And all the freedom that money buys, like groceries and gas to fuel your car, suddenly becomes lost and you begin to feel anxious about things that you never felt anxious about. Maybe you're anxious about where your next meal is going to come from. Or you're anxious about when the power company is going to turn off your heat or the water company is going to turn off your water. Or you become anxious about how much longer you can stay in your apartment before you get evicted, or when your mortgage company is going to foreclose on your house. You know, the minute you don't have money, you have a whole new level of stresses and strains and anxieties that enter into your life. It's a terrible suffering to be poor, and I know that some of you in this room right now are facing these kinds of struggles. But the one thing that a poor person can never lose is his or her high position in God's kingdom through Christ. Paul speaks of this high position in Ephesians 2, verses 6 through 7. He says, by grace you have been saved. And then he says, and God raised us up with him, meaning Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You see, the poor cherish this eternal position that they share in Christ. And they know what it means to live in dependence upon God for daily provisions. They know how to pray those prayers of desperation that God will show up and provide for their needs. And they also experience miracles, than, more miracles than most, because they experience how God swoops in in supernatural ways and provides for them. I think this is why on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says over and over again how the poor are blessed. He knows that they're blessed because they understand something about God and his provisions, give us thy daily bread, that most people don't understand. And I think this is why James is telling them to boast. Boast in your position because not to say boast with pride, but boast with joy because of your spiritual exaltation in Christ. But then to the rich, in verse 10, he says, and the rich in his humiliation. So you see, these aren't just rich people out in the world. This is us. This, these are the rich people in the church, the body of believers in Christ. And he knows that the rich also experience trials. So some of the trials that the rich face is the trial to try to hold on to their money, to keep their money from being lost, to keep their riches from being taken away. There's also a trial in being seduced by riches into believing that their identity is defined by them. I mean, people with money tend to have higher socioeconomic status. They tend to wield more power and influence in their culture than people who don't have money. But as believers, they're challenged to be humble, and they're challenged to use their money for God's good purposes. 
And then, of course, we know that when you have more money, you buy more stuff. And the more stuff you have, the more stuff you have to care for, the more that you have to tend to it, places you have to order and protect, and all the things you have to do with stuff becomes a burden. And so the other thing, too, is that all that stuff can distract us from wanting to serve the Lord because we have you know, big homes to care for and cars to take care of or to go get more jobs to provide for all of our stuff. So there is a burden that comes with being wealthy. And wealthy people don't yearn for the riches of heaven in the same way as poor people because life is so abundant. It's so comfortable. There isn't the same desperation on, for God to provide because their wealth has provided for, for their needs just fine. I had a friend about 30 years ago. She's actually still a friend, but about 30 years ago, my friend was, um, she's very, very wealthy, lived here in Lake Oswego. And I was sharing the gospel with her, and she said to me very flatly, she said, I don't have any need for God. She said, I have everything. I have a beautiful home on the lake. I have a marriage. I have a career. What more could God give me? It's interesting that now 30 years later, three marriages have failed, Careers have gone down the tube. Money has been lost. But unfortunately, in those 30 years, her heart also grew cold. And now she still believes that she is fine without the Lord. She has no need for God. That's the danger of being a wealthy, comfortable person. So James is reminding us. He's just telling us the truth. Riches fade like a flower in the scorching sun. Riches are here one minute and gone the next. He says, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now we know riches are fleeting. Anybody live through the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis? Wow. That came suddenly and was very painful. How about the Black Monday in 1987? Anybody here live through the stock market crash of 1929? <laughs> no. <laughs> you could still be here. There, I know. There, I know, Betty. I know you were here from the, the 1929 stock market crash. So we know that, that, these, that when things happen that are out of our control, um, houses are foreclosed upon, jobs are lost, bank accounts are drained, retirement accounts, retirement accounts are wiped out. Um, these things can happen that are totally out of our control. And the truth is, it's all, all of our stuff is decaying, right? All of our stuff is, is breaking, decaying. Our bodies are decaying. They're aging. They are not getting younger. And so this is a truth that God's telling us, like, look, it's all perishing. It's all fading away. Don't cling to these things that have no eternal value. Um, he's saying your riches, the, the riches that you can truly boast in, the riches that you can rejoice in are your riches in Christ, which will never, ever fade. These are the riches that provide an everlasting security. And the only riches that should speak into our identity are the riches we have in Christ. And guess what? God doesn't call us rich or poor. He calls us daughters of the king. Is there any better identity than that? And that is an identity that never, ever fades. So my question for you to think about is what resources do you rely upon in times of trouble when life gets tough, when you're in a trial, do you rely upon your material resources, 
Do you feel secure in your bank account, your investment account, your great job, your education? All of the things, the, the beautiful home that you live in, the family that you have, are those the things that you seek comfort and strength from? Or do you rely on your spiritual resources, your salvation in Christ, his victory over death that comforts you when someone is dying, the gift of his Holy Spirit which provides wisdom and comfort and guidance for you in difficulties, his everlasting word which speaks truth into your life no matter what you're going through. He has provided a wealth of spiritual resources that are dependable in times of trial. You know, my husband and I are sort of learning afresh. You know, we get to learn lessons at various times in our lives over and over again sometimes, but we're learning afresh now what it means to hold our material possessions lightly and trust God for our provisions. Um, Many of you know that my husband was out of work last year for about 10 months, and we just we prayed just fervently for God to direct his path. We really had it in our hearts that, that, we, that he wanted to go back into the financial industry, which is where he spent most of his career. And so we prayed and prayed, and there were these different opportunities that came, and each one seemed so perfect. And we would pray, Lord, yes, this is the one. And then we'd get all the way to the very final moment of a job offer, and then it would, it would die. It would go cold. And this happened time and time again. And so finally, nine, nine months into this journey, a job presented itself and it seemed like it's time to take this job. And it seemed financially like it was time to, to, for him to start earning some income again. So, so we thought, okay, this must be the job. But his heart wasn't into this job. It just wasn't really what he wanted to do. But he felt the responsibility to say yes. Well, then, the day that he was supposed to start the new job, he got an offer for another job. And it was, we kind of think of it as the ram in the bush. You know, he was ready to make the sacrifice, and ah, oh, there's another job. And this job seems so perfect for his skill set, for his experience. We were so excited about this job. But guess what? It's a commission job. It starts at zero <laughs> financially. So what do you do when you're praying and you're trusting God and this perfect job is presented, but it's at zero? And even right now, he's three months in, he's making 10% of what we need to pay our monthly expenses. Well, we just believe that God wanted us to trust him, just to trust him. As we prayed, we really felt God saying to us, will you trust me to be your provider? Um, will you place everything in my hands? Will you remember that I'm the one who provides your daily provisions and all of your real treasures are not in money. They're in things that are stored up for you in heaven. And the job has great potential, great opportunity, but we're in a season of trust. But there's also, though it's scary, I have to say there are times when it's scary just to lay it all down again. Lord, okay, this month we trust you. At the same time, there's this incredible beauty about the way that we come together in prayer each morning, this sweetness that we have when we bring this before the Lord every morning in prayer. We trust him. God, he loves his job. So that's, praise God, that's amazing. Loves the people, loves what he gets to do. But we bring, we come before him and we lay our burden at his feet. And then it's, it's like we then are on our tiptoes in anticipation of what God's going to do. What are you going to do, Lord? And there's a sweetness to how that grows our faith. 
and deepens our trust in him. The truth is only your spiritual riches can carry you through the tests and trials of life. Only your spiritual riches can carry you through. And what are those spiritual riches for you? Are, are they, do they stem from your relationship with Christ? Do they, they spring out of your identity in him? Read Ephesians 1 if you want to be reminded of your identity in Christ. And how can you rely on these riches in times of difficulty? Well, you have to pray. You have to, to pray for God's wisdom. That's what James has been telling us. He's been saying, hey, you're going to have trials in your life, but pray for God's wisdom. He is eager to give it to you. And then trust him to keep you steadfast in the storms. He will keep you faithful. And then watch. Watch and see how he blesses you by growing you up in your reliance upon him, which is maturity. The more that we become reliant on him, the more that we trust him, the more we are maturing and growing in our faith. And that's his goal, to grow us up in Christ. But your spiritual riches are only riches that will carry you through the tests and trials of life. Well, now, verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Interesting word, that word blessed in the Greek is makarios, and it means genuinely happy. Genuinely happy are those who remain steadfast under trials. Why? Because when we stand up under the weight of our trials, we're going to be genuinely happy when we receive the reward that God has for us in heaven. The image here is of an athlete. An athlete who endures great bodily stress in order to have the highest level of physical performance to win her event in a competition. When she wins, then, she receives this laurel wreath. The imagery is of this laurel wreath that athletes get when they, when they win. It's the ultimate symbol of honor and glory. So in the same way, when we remain steadfast under trials, when we persevere in our troubles, we receive this crown of life, this crown of glory and honor. Um, this is the and this crown is the ultimate enjoyment of God's presence. When we are steadfast through our trials, we, we enjoy forever the presence of God, the crown of his glory. Even if that trial might lead to physical death, Life is the reward for those who love God. Now, of course, this reward stems from that blessing that we already have in our salvation in Christ. Remember what we learned last week, that we are, we are not saved by any kind of valiant effort. We're not saved by running the race, by persevering, by being steadfast, by any kind of work. But once saved... Um, we have the power of Christ to actually help us endure hardships and actually experience joy and blessing in the midst of them. So what are some of those blessings that we enjoy in the midst of trials? Here's a couple of them, four of them for you. First of all, we talked about this last week a little bit too. Our character is molded and shaped by the hard things that we go through. And as our character is molded and shaped we begin to recognize different kinds of attributes within ourselves that are like Christ. We start to recognize the fruits of the Spirit. You know, we start to say, hey, I, I've got love and joy and peace and growing patience and increasing kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. 
we recognize we're changing inside because these trials that we're going through as we're remaining steadfast and persevering in Christ are starting to affect our character because the fruits of the Spirit are taking hold in us. And then we also, we begin to realize that we're growing in wisdom, that we're gaining perspective into God's view of things, into God's purposes. Trials tend to help us, to drive us to God, and then we find wisdom from God in that. We have a different lens in life. I love this morning in our leaders meeting, one of our leaders just shared something so profound about how suffering shapes her lens of life. And I, as I listened to her, I could hear in the back things. I, could, I knew that what was coming behind her wisdom was her actual experiences of suffering that she has and is going through. And I was just marveling at how she could articulate something so profound knowing that it came from her experience of walking with God through really hard things. Ephesians 1.17 says, Not that, that the, God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. We get to know God in, in such a profound way when we're going through hard things. The third thing is that um, our lives give praise and honor to God. That's one of the blessings that we actually, when we persevere through our trials, when we trust God, our trust in him becomes a testament of our love for him and of his love for us. And God promises that we're going to have a glorious inheritance waiting for us. He says in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So the truth is that in the midst of your greatest trials, you are secure in God's love. In the midst of your greatest trials, you are secure in God's love. Now, I imagine that some of you really need to hear that this morning. You are in the midst of a really, really painful trial, and you need to know that you are insecure in God's love, even if this trial is the result of a mess that you made. Even if you're the cause of the mess, you are secure. God will never love you any more today or any less today than he loves you right now. You are secure. You are blessed in Christ. One of the things that happens when we're in the midst of a trial is that along with that trial comes an enticement to sin. External tests can cause internal temptations. And we experience the strongest pulls of temptation when we're in a state of suffering and hardship, don't we? Now, what's the difference between a test and a temptation? Okay, a test is the means by which the presence, quality, or genuineness of anything is determined. A test um, determines what is this thing made of? It's genuineness, it's quality, its presence. But a temptation is an opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way. So it's good, let's say, to take a test in school, right? When you take a test in school, your teacher is trying to determine your learning. What's the quality of your learning? What's your comprehension? What's the genuineness of your understanding on this test? It's good to take a test. It measures something of great value. But it would be wrong to cheat on a test right? That would be a sin. Now imagine, another example, imagine you're in a really hard season in your marriage. 
and you're not communicating with your husband. And maybe you're shut down towards each other. Silent treatment, could be even sleeping in different bedrooms. But regardless, you're living together, but you're not in community with each other. And you don't really know how things are going to get back on track. And then you have a male coworker. And that male coworker picks up on some vibes from you and maybe begins to engage you in conversation, um, helps you to feel valued when you're not really feeling valued at home. You find that you want to spend more time with him. You want to sh share your heart with him. It's so much easier than to share your heart with your husband because you've got baggage with your husband, right? You've got a, years of hurt. Here's a person who's just fun, easy. And then you begin to rationalize, you know, this relationship is so much easier than my marriage relationship. You maybe begin to think that, you know, God doesn't want you to be unhappy, right? He wants you to be happy. Desire begins to take root in your heart. And now what you do next becomes a test. Um, whether you're going to believe God and his word and choose to obey him and do what he would want you to do, or whether you continue to fuel your desires. There's a test, right? And these times of difficulty serve to test our faith and to test our obedience to God. But God is not the one who tempts us to sin. He simply uses our trials as a test of our own determinations. The question is, will we persevere in faith through that temptation and remain obedient, or will we succumb to the desires to numb our pain and exert our own wills, which will lead us into sin? So that's why James wants us to be very clear about this when he says in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So God does test the presence, the quality, and the genuineness of our faith. But he never tempts us to sin. And James is actually describing a fourfold process that leads to sin. It starts with desire. Now, desire is a normal part of our lives. Desire is how God created us, right? We have a desire to eat because we're hungry, so we eat. We have a desire we get thirsty, so we drink. We get fatigued, so we rest. We have a desire for sexual. We have sexual desires. So we have intimacy with our spouse, or, and which also propagates the human race through having children, right? These are good, healthy desires that God has given, and they are within his will. Um, but we know that they can be distorted, right? So eating is normal, but gluttony is a sin. It's a distorted desire of a healthy, a distorted outcome of a healthy desire, Rest is good, but laziness is a sin. Sex is good, but sex outside of marriage is adultery or fornication, and that's a sin. And so normal desires, when they're distorted, become sin. Now, in the same way that we can distort them by aggrandizing them, by going too far with them, we can also distort them by um, denying our normal desires. So to starve and not eat, not feed yourself is a sin. 
to stay, you know, there's other things we do that just maybe aren't sin, but they hurt ourselves. It's like we don't sleep at night, we don't take care of our bodies, or we don't satisfy our thirst with good things to drink, or um, we don't give ourselves to each other in marriage physically. There are things that we do that can distort these desires, either by aggrandizing them or denying them. The point is that our desires are meant to serve us and not master us. So we need God's help with that, right? Because we're all out of balance in one way or another. We need God's help to keep our desires in their proper, proper place. And when a desire is enticed by sin, we call that a lust. It doesn't have to be a physical lust. It can be a lust in another way as well. So it starts with desire and then comes deception. Now, no temptation ever shows up as like, hi, I'm a temptation, because then you would run the other way, right? You'd be like, I'm not interested. It's more sneaky than that. Um, A temptation usually comes disguised as something really alluring. So any of you enjoy fishing? Well, so some of you do, fishing. So you know, before you cast your hook, when you're fishing, you bait it with something that looks really delicious to fish. It could be a juicy, plumpy, plump worm. It could be a very wispy, colorful fly. Whatever it is, you are intentionally disguising that hook with something that you know fish are going to enjoy. Now, this is what James is referring to when he talks about um, being enticed. The idea of being enticed in the original language is that idea of baiting a hook. Um, So no fish, we know, fish don't bite on naked hooks, right? They bite on hooks that are baited with something that looks absolutely alluring and desirable. And the same happens to us. So we, when we are tempted, it's because there's a bait dangling right in front of us. And not only does that bait look attractive to us, it also hides something very dangerous. It hides a hook, something that's going to bring pain and suffering into our lives. But the bait looks so good, right? And sometimes in the moment, we don't even care if there's a hook under the bait because the bait looks so good. Bathsheba looks so good to David, bathing out on her porch, He shouldn't even have been there, right? He should have been at war. But he sees her bathing. And in that moment, he doesn't even think about the fact that she's married, about the fact that this sin with Bathsheba is going to lead to him actually murdering her husband, and then their young baby's going to die. He has no long-range view of the hook that lies behind the bait. He just sees something so tempting to him. The bait always keeps us from seeing the consequences of sin because it's deceptive. Then comes disobedience. So disobedience happens when we move from the emotions of desire and the mind of deception to the will of action. Disobedience is is an activity of the will. So when desire conceives a method of actually taking the bait, the will provokes action and then sin is birthed. Once sin is born, then that sin takes on a life of its own. It's, it's like a, it's a new thing, and it will continue to grow, and it will continue to have power and influence over our lives until we decide to stop and repent. But you see, disobedience gives birth to death, not life. Once sin is birthed, it is like a cancer, It is like it starts to multiply and grow and take over, and it destroys everything. It destroys human relationships. It destroys the physical body. It destroys the spiritual blessings. 
doesn't destroy your salvation, but destroys the blessings that you've been living with when you've been walking with Jesus in obedience. Think about Eve in the Garden of Eden. So the serpent awakened Eve's desires. So the serpent gave her a desire for knowledge and food. He said to her in Genesis 3, 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, this tree, your eyes are going to be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So notice there are two normal desires, to eat of a good-looking food and to have increased knowledge about God. That sounds good. These are desires that Satan awoke in her. But he baited that hook with a lie because the tree was forbidden. And the food, he told her that the tree was good and the food would make her wise. And she forgot, actually, the Lord's warning that was given back in Genesis 2.17. When the Lord said, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So Eve disobeys God by taking the fruit and eating it and then giving it to her husband. Now Eve was deceived by the serpent. So she had desire, she was deceived, she was disobedient. But her husband wasn't deceived by the serpent. He took and ate the fruit with his eyes wide open. And that is why the, the whole human race was plunged into sin through Adam and not through Eve. Both Adam and Eve, though, experienced immediate death. So spiritually, their relationship was, with God was broken because they disobeyed him. Relationally, it was broken because they pointed at each other and said, you made me do it, you made me do it, it's your fault, it's your fault. And then physically, they, at some point, they died. Their bodies returned to the ground as dust. So when you and I face trials, you will be tempted to think that God doesn't really love you, that God doesn't really care about you. And so James then reminds us, no, no. God is good, and he is for us. He is for you. This is why he goes on in these last two verses to talk about the goodness of God. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought a of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He's saying, look, because God is good, you don't have to go anywhere else to satisfy your desires. But beware of the danger that does lurk when you begin to question God's goodness. Once you begin to doubt God's goodness like Eve did, temptation is right around the corner. And so James wants us to remind us of a couple of things. He wants us to, say, to remind us that, look, even when you go through trials and temptations, tests, even when you go through the hard stuff in life, God is good, and his gifts are always good, and he will use even the hardest things in our lives for his good purposes. He wants us to know, too, that God is unchanging. He's the father of lights. Um, there's no darkness in him. You know, light dispels darkness. Light and darkness can't coexist in the same space because light dispels the darkness. So like the sun that never stops shining, God is unchanging. He is always light. And he, is, he will never be darkness. So when there's a shadow that falls between you, between you and him, it's not him that's caused the shadow. His light is always shining. We never need to question his love or doubt his goodness. He's always the same.
And then he tells us that we are the first fruits of his creatures. We are his crowning glory in all creation. We share his image. We have been born by the will of God, by the truth of his word, through the gospel of Christ. We matter to God. He is for us. And the truth is that the goodness of God is your fortitude against succumbing to temptation. The goodness of God is your fortitude against succumbing to temptation. I chose that word fortitude because I love the meaning of it. Fortitude means mental and emotional strength in facing difficulty, adversity, danger, or temptation courageously. So when we remind ourselves of the goodness of God, we have this kind of strength, this mental and emotional strength with courage to face whatever it is that we're facing. So how can you have victory over temptation in your life? Let me give you a few things I've learned in my life. One thing that you can do is pray, pray, pray that temptation and opportunity never intersect. There will be times when you are deeply tempted to sin. Pray that the opportunity doesn't coincide with your temptation. Or when opportunity arises, pray that your heart is not in a state of being tempted. Pray that those two things shall never meet. That will keep you a great distance from falling, from succumbing to your temptations. Secondly, know God's word. Just know his word so that you can detect the bait, so that you can call the bait out for what it is and wisely choose to walk by faith and not by sight. If you walk by sight, the bait is going to entice you to bite. But if you're able to say, ah, I see you for what you are. The Bible tells me to flee temptation. I'm walking by faith. I'm believing God's word, and I'm not going to succumb. Thirdly, do the right thing regardless of how you feel. Emotions are fleeting. The greatest thing you can tell yourself is that this too shall pass. These emotions, you know, the thing about children is that children live by feelings until they're able to be mature. And then they're able to make reasoned decisions. They're able to to think and decide rather than to respond based on how they feel, right? Now, um, Part of being an adult means that we no longer react to every stimulus in life with emotions. We have minds. We can think about what's happening. We can make decisions. We have a whole life of context that we can put our struggles and our temptations in the framework of our history and our, our journey in life. And we can understand things um, about, about that. We have self-control over our impulses. And so as we mature in Christ, we're able now to look down the road and we have wisdom and we're able to see, ah, we can hypothesize. In fact, they say, you know, kids can't really hypothesize until they're in their 20s. But as adults, we can hypothesize and say, okay, I know if I do this, it's going to lead to that. Therefore, I should not do this so I don't end up doing that. Um, And the more, of course, we choose to resist temptation, the stronger we grow in our confidence in God and the more we avail ourselves of his grace and love. Philippians 2.13 says that God is for us. It is, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then my fourth bit of advice is memorize Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. Memorize that verse so that you can overcome temptation with a reality check. This is the consequence of sin, whether it's a a relationship death, whether it's a physical death, whether it's brokenness in your relationship with God. 
Remind yourself that this will not lead to anywhere but death. So let me go back to our questions. Why is life, why is my life so hard? And let me just share candidly, I got hard stuff in my life too. We're all in this together. We are not different from each other. We're in this together. Why is my life so hard? Because we live in a world where there's sin and there's brokenness. There's my sin, there's your sin, there's other people's sin. We live in a world where there's a lot of hurt and there's a lot of pain. There's death, there's sorrow, there's evil, there's a lot of sin, and it hurts. And no one is immune from it at all. Um, We have our own sinful choices to live with, as well as the sinful choices of others. So that creates hardship. Can God be trusted with my trials? Yes, he can. God is good, and he has provided spiritual resources to carry you through your trials. Namely, he has provided his wisdom, which James has been telling us. God's wisdom is available to you. Um, He's given us his word to speak truth into our lives. He's given us his spirit to comfort us to uh, direct us along the way, to help us navigate through the windy road of difficulty that we find ourselves in. Um, He can be trusted. And then can I face temptations and not sin? Yes, you can. But you have to choose to walk by faith and not by sight. You have to use your spiritual eyes to see that alluring bait dangling right in front of you and not be deceived. The word of God is going to be your constant reminder that the end game of sin is death, but you have the assurance that God is good and he is with you. He is your strength. You have fortitude in him. Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. So that's the truth. Life is hard, yes, but God is good. Let me pray for us. Father, we need your help to navigate life in this broken world. It's very, very challenging and it's very painful. And yet, Lord, you've given us your help through your son, Jesus, who has made a way for us to be in relationship with you. And you've given us your Holy Spirit to guide us and comfort us and reveal truth to us. You've told us the truth about sin and you've told us the truth about our own desires and deceptions and disobedience and death. Lord, you have told us the reality of the world that we live in and of our own nature. And so, Lord, we ask for your help. Help us to live by faith, not by sight, to trust in your word and to experience your presence in such a way that we are strengthened with fortitude in the midst of the worst trials, tests, and temptations. We need you, Lord. And we ask for your strength in the power of Jesus' name. Amen.